I want to first start off by welcoming everyone and thanking you for tuning in to this week's time uh, together in, in God's Word. In fact, if you, if you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn together with me to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7. And as you're turning to Matthew in chapter 7, uh, I just wanted to continue to thank you and just express just how encouraged um, I have been with us keeping one another in our prayers and supporting one another in various ways. And I just want to continue to let our faith family know that we are with you in spirit and that we want to continue to be available to one another, regardless of what those needs may, may look like, and be prepared to serve each other in any way that we could safely and, and wisely, wisely do so. And so I'm thankful for you. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to, to turn to Matthew in chapter 7. What I would like to do is begin our time reading, starting at verse 24. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. Where there, Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, um, has the opportunity to speak on building our house on, on the rock. In verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Fathers, we approach your word. At this moment, we invite your presence, we invite your Holy Spirit, and ask that this word would go far and deep in each of our lives. Lord, we're thankful that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so this is a time that we do not take lightly one bit. We live by your word. And so, Lord, I ask for these promises, these truths found in sacred scripture to be an encouragement and a comfort and a support to God's people during these pressing times, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I could almost recall like it was yesterday when I, along with my family, were in a position uh, my wife at the time, and we just had one child, where we were in a position to be able to buy our and purchase our first house. We had gotten into contract, but had not closed escrow. And this was all the first time for me. So you got you to gotta get this. Um, and I'm just beginning to learn things about how to submit an offer, how to put yourself in an advantageous position, um, how to request an appraisal. Well, Long story short, we got to the point in this whole house buying process where we were picked, but before we went ahead and closed on the house, we were told and advised to hire um, a home inspector of all things, a home inspector. And I said, okay, well, what, what's a house inspector? Well, I was told, well, this is the person who will make it a point to visit your home, the home that would, would be yours if everything goes through fine, 
And they have a chance to just make sure that everything that they say um, is good with the house is in fact so. And these are home inspectors that this is their job. And so they know exactly what to look for. And so you'll pay for them and they'll come. In fact, you could even meet them at the house and they'll show you how to handle the house, how to take care of the upkeep with the house. And they'll also let you in on the kinds of things, the sort of things that they pay particular attention to that would be important for you as a home buyer. It would almost be so important as to, um, these are deal breaker matters. And so if these areas are not good, it makes no sense really to go forward with the house purchase. I'm like, okay, so we'll do it. And so I did. And this guy was great. I mean, he taught me in a, a lot in just one day. But there's one thing that he, he pointed out in particular, and that was he took me out of the house and he says, I want to show you something about the foundation of this house. I need, you, I need you to understand what I look at and what helps me to understand whether this house is sitting on a, on a healthy, proper foundation or not, right? And so he did. And I don't want to belabor that point and bring you into that. But, but he, he, he expressly pointed out that, you see, the reason why this is important and not just the over-the-range microwave or the closet or some of the other things that he pointed out to me that could have easily been fixed and that in no way should mean to, for me, however problematic, that the deal was, was to be a deal breaker. But with the foundation, that was critical. Why? Because once you get through with the foundation and you have a house on it, there's really no way going back. Okay. Today, I want to talk to you and, and to me about necessary foundations. And the reason why I want to do so is because Jesus is talking to us about necessary. That's the title of my, of my message today, Necessary Foundations. Um, this particular chapter falls within this larger context that some have referred to as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. These are his Beatitudes, if you will. Um, the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 of Matthew's account of the gospel, and it ends at the end of chapter 7. So there's three chapters in this sermon. And here we're, at, we're, we're brought to a place where Jesus is introducing what this kingdom looks like on earth. And he wants to let us know that just as it is in heaven, so on earth. You see, with Jesus' arrival, not just on the earth, but with his ministry launching, he inaugurated his kingdom. Some have referred to his kingdom as the already and not yet kingdom. So there's a sense in which with Jesus coming on the scene, it's already. We don't need to wait for him to come again. But because of what we still see all around us that has nothing to do with being a perfect picture of what heaven is like, it's not yet. And so even though Jesus started something, he's not through with what he started. And so he's inaugurated it, only to eventually come back again to consummate what he started. And so until then, the church is not the kingdom, but the church is supposed to be that community, that faith community that's supposed to put feet on, uh, onto the reality of the kingdom. And so if there's any place we're supposed to look if there's any place where we're supposed to look to be able to see a representation of the kingdom, it's to be in the lives of God's people who make up God's church.
And so wherever there is a life or a heart submitted to the Lord Jesus, there's a kingdom. And that kingdom begins with what Jesus is introducing here. I know when we look at the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, your response is probably what my response was. It's like, this is impossible. No way. Can't be. Uh Uh-uh. And that's true when it comes to us in and of ourselves. But when it comes to God and what he's able to accomplish in and through our lives, it is possible. In fact, Jesus himself says elsewhere that with man, this is impossible. But with God, huh, all things are possible. All things are possible. You see, the Sermon on the Mount, the life of the kingdom here on this earth, the teaching that we're about to see in just these four verses presupposes that the person coming under the hearing of this message is a born-again believer. None of this is ever going to be a reality or true concerning you or me unless God's life has entered into my own life. You see, the gospel has to do with not only understanding that the penalty of my sins have been paid for through Jesus' death in my place. That is, that this Jesus entered into human history, lived a life that I was incapable of living in my place, went forward, died a death for my sins, rose again triumphantly, giving me the victory over sin, Satan, and death. It also has to do with something that I'm afraid often goes overlooked or, sadly, doesn't get mentioned at all in a lot of presentations of the gospel, and that's this, that it's not just that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins, it's that he secured the Holy Spirit out of love for me, so much so that when he ascended back to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit so that that Holy Spirit might permanently reside within me. This is critical. This is critical. Why is that important? Because when that Holy Spirit resides within me, what God does is he doesn't just give me a good standing with God. That's just legal language. I need more than to be right with God on legal terms. I need a heart change. And that's what God has gone on to do. He didn't just secure my standing with God so that I'm acceptable in his sight. He went even further and went in me and changed my heart. Ezekiel, in chapter 36 of Ezekiel's prophetic literature, talks about how God promises one day to remove our heart of stone out of us and replace it with a heart of flesh. And then take his spirit and put it within us so that you and I might be able to walk continually in his ways. Right? That's important. And that's what we see here. That's what Jesus came to do. Not just to bring us into right standing with God, but to make sure that his Holy Spirit is in us so that we might be regenerated. New people. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature, where the old things, the old order has passed away and the new has come. You see, I'm a new person. God has done a new work from the inside out. I have a new nature, which means I have new desires, new aims, new ambitions, new drives, new passions, all because of the gospel, all because of the gospel. You see, this is going to be important as we start unpacking this particular portion of Scripture. And you'll see why in a moment. So the Holy Spirit comes within me. 
He doesn't just come within me so I can accomplish a task or two. He comes within me to reside within me permanently. All right. In the Old Testament, we saw the Holy Spirit show up, but he would show up and that was it for a particular task. In the New Testament, we're promised a new covenant experience, a new covenant reality that has to do with the Holy Spirit being sealed within our hearts, Ephesians 1.13, for good. And that reality shows up in me realizing that I no longer have the same desires I once did. The sin I once loved, I now hate. And the God that I once hated, I now love. The things I once could have never seen myself about, I'm now every bit about. All because of the gospel. The gospel that didn't just pay the penalty for my sins. It didn't just bring me into a a right or a good standing with God on legal terms, which has to do with justification. It goes beyond that, which is language of adoption. I'm a child now. I belong to this family now. God's not just my God now. He's dad. He's Abba. He's father now. I've got the family name. I got a seat at the table. I belong to this household. And his Holy Spirit is is within me, who's given me new desires. So I'm not just reading God's word or God's law. Everything within me says yes to it. Why? Because God changed my heart. You see, if God didn't change my heart and all he did was give me his book, if you will, nothing within me would find myself resonating with what I'm reading in Scripture, you see? But because he changed my heart, I could say amen to the things that I am am reading. And so Jesus points this out, you see? And the reason this is so significant is when you and I look at what we're about to see right now in one second, I want you to understand Jesus lives within us through his second incarnation, if you will. Yes, Jesus came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us physically at one point in time in human history 2,000 years ago. But there's a very real sense in which Jesus came again, um, if you will. Okay, And what I mean by that, so you don't mistake me, is he's come back again by means of his Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Okay, So Jesus is with us. Lo, I'm with you always. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. How? How? Because he sent his Holy Spirit. So that it's not, a lot of times people think like, how, how does God expect me to obey and, and to live out this stuff? That's what we're going to talk about. I mean, this is impossible. A lot of Christians have this idea, maybe this is you, where there's God over here, okay, and there's me over here. And God is over here saying, all right, you heard what I said, right? Now do it. Or better yet, I'm going to go ahead and do it for you. Now, did you see me? Now follow after me. And so, so many people have this relationship or this picture or experience with Jesus. He's the example in the sky. Jesus did it. He hopped skipped and jumped. Now I'm supposed to hop, skip and jump. And hopefully it's like, it's almost like he's got a guitar in his hand and I'm supposed to follow after him as best as I can. And I keep blowing it. That's not the Christian life. Yes. Jesus is an example to us, right? And there is something to be said about imitating Christ. But if that's the only picture you have of the Christian life, you're going to fall miserably. 
you're going to you're not going to experience all that the christian life has to you we need to move beyond jesus as mere merely someone that needs to be imitated what do i mean i mean this this is good jesus is not just someone for the christian to imitate jesus is that same person that i get to imitate who's also inside of me, living out the commandments that I'm reading, hearing, and trying to obey. So it's not just me over here and Jesus biting his fingernails, hoping, I hope my disciple doesn't embarrass me. I hope he gets it this time. No, 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 don't have that picture. As you are going about trying to be obedient to your God and live out the very things that you believe he wants you living out, guess what? It's him in you living it out. That's important. So yes, it's you, but it's also him. <laughs> you got to get that, right? I've been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who now lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see that? So yes, it's you, but if that's all you got, you don't got enough. It's Christ in you. That's important. Jesus is not just, that's a, that's a truncated gospel where all you got is a Jesus to be imitated. You got to have that but that's not enough. You need a Jesus who comes in you by means of the Holy Spirit and empowers you to be able to live this life that he's called you to, that he died and rose again for you to be able to live. And Galatians 2.20 is wonderful. I'll give you one more before we start unpacking this text. Philippians 2.12 and 13, or Philippians 2.11 and 12, where the Bible says, work out your salvation. Huh? With fear and trembling, because, next part of the verse, it's God who is working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it, Neb? Is it me or is it him? Yes. <laughs> okay? It's both and. As I am setting out to love my parent, as I am setting out to be gracious toward my spouse, as I am setting out to put away sin and to put on God's righteousness, guess what? I don't need to be thinking, is God right here? Is God helping me? Well, is it in the Bible? Is it the kind of thing that God would support? Well, you don't need to waste a second as to whether or not God is in it. Of course he is. I loved um, Augustine, I believe, who's the one who, who said this. And he says, um, command what thou wilt and will what thou commandest. <laughs> I love that. What he's pointing out is that there's no way in the world that God could call his Christians to something and not give them what they need to be able to live it out. That's my way of interpreting a fourth century church father. Hopefully that works for you instead of that command without willest and wilt without commandest, right? It's like, look, if God has it in his book and that's what he wants his Christians to be about, you better believe this, that he's going to give you what you need to be able to live that out, right? He's not over here commanding you to live some way so that he can see you blow it and drop the ball flat on your face over here. No, that's not God. So what is Jesus talking about 
here. Verse 24. He says there, he's, he's, he's talking about necessary foundations. And this introduces my, my first point. And that's this. Number one, everyone is building their lives on something. Okay? Everyone is building their lives on something. And Jesus is pointing that out with the use of this illustration of two foundations. One is a rock and one is sand. And he talks about that there. And he says, look, no matter what, it's not a question of whether or not someone is, because they are. Or if someone is, it's a question of what they're building on. Everyone is. A lot of times people think once they become a Christian, they actually started living or or taking their life in a certain direction. There's no neutral place. Everyone is going in some direction with their lives. The question is, in what direction? Everybody's got a foundation. The question is, what sort of foundation is it? Is it one that's going to stand or not? Everyone is building their lives on something. And Jesus wants to make sure that we take a good look at our lives and ask ourselves, just what exactly is it? In the story, in the particular account, he draws upon this analogy of of a house. And that's important because one house has a rock and this other house has, has sand. And in order to appreciate this analogy, you've got to understand, this is a neighborhood. This isn't two separate neighborhoods. This is one neighborhood. This is one block, one street. This isn't one house in one part of town and in another house in a whole other part of town. These houses, it would be safe to say, are on, in the same neighborhood and on the same block, side by side. Why is this important? Because when they become exposed to the weather elements, it's going to be key. Uh, if there's rain, rain falls on both houses. If there's a flood, both houses have to encounter it. If there's wind, if there's a storm that's going to come beating against the house, it's also going to happen to the other house. So then what's the difference? It's the foundations. It's what they're, it's what they're building their houses upon. You see, before the elements come, there's no telling because they may, they may shop at the same Home Depot. They may get this, their material from the same stores. They may build in very much the same way from the ground up. The only place where differences lie are with their foundation. And a lot of times, you know, it's amazing how you could look at a house and it looks beautiful, but as soon as uh, a storm comes, strong winds come, that means nothing. Similarly, in our own lives, it's amazing how far we can go with our lives where to all outward <laughs> observers, it looks, looks perfectly fine. Like, I mean, when we look at it, it's like, wow, it's like married, kids, house, school, job, or you name it. Things look Good, especially based on their social media page and what they're posting. Everything looks fine. Yeah, but how about the foundation is what Jesus is saying. Don't try to construct and build your life in a way that pulls it off before the eyes of others. Try to construct and build your life in a way that pulls it off before the elements. Right? Everybody can do fine insofar as rain is not coming, right? Or wind or storms are not showing up on Doppler radar. 
The question is, what happens when the house is exposed to unforeseen weather conditions? And Jesus, out of a concern for our lives, wants to make sure that we're not living lives that work on Instagram or Facebook. We're living lives that work no matter the seasons. No matter the seasons. Some of us have lives that are doing perfectly fine, but that's only because it's summer. (laughs) It's spring. Winter hasn't come yet. And Jesus says, I'm trying to prepare you as my disciples for all four seasons. So that no matter what season you find yourself in, you're going to do fine. And so Jesus points this out. And the only way that could happen is by you taking concern and taking care to know how you're building. What foundation are you building on? Everybody's building their lives on something. The question is, what is it? You see, he says there in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus talks about these words. So we know ultimately Jesus is not talking about double-paned windows and stucco and sheetrock, (laughs) right? Um, And nice front doors and patios. No, Jesus is talking about your life and my life as followers of his. And what he says is, he, he brings in, he introduces his words. He says, my words. Uh, Jesus says, his words are life. My words are spirit, and they are life. Uh, you see, the reason why Jesus draws attention to his words is because he's God. Second uh, Timothy in chapter 3 and verse 16 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be competent and equipped for what? Every good work. So the, the whole perp- scripture is profitable because it comes from God. And scripture is given to us not just so that we might grow in our head knowledge, but so that we might grow in our lives. We, we might act, our lives might amount to something for every good work, no matter what it is whether it's in the house or out of the house, in the church or outside of the church, at the job or when I'm off the job, no matter where I may find myself, God's work, God's word is useful. God's word is useful. And he's also speaking to the sufficiency of scripture. A lot of people who want to add the Bible plus other things. And Jesus is saying, look, my word is enough. I I didn't make a mistake by not including an additional book into my word. That In all of these 66 books, I've got what I need to be able to live a life meaningful before God and others. It's important because there's a lot of people. You see, if if I begin to start becoming in doubt of God's word and its usefulness and profitableness in my life, I'm already on a path towards sliding. That's going to affect my foundations. And Jesus is trying to say, look, how serious do you take my word? Do you recognize that you got all that you need in here? Now, in order to be clear, I'm not saying that Christians should not be reading. I've got tons of books outside of the Bible. But I want you to understand, be a man, be a woman who is well-read, but understand the one important book that all of those other books can go, but this book cannot. 
There's only one book that's inspired. There's only one book that's revelation. There's only one book that came from heaven down. There's only one book that God can say is his book. And that's the word of God. And so I want to encourage you to keep that in mind. This is, this is critical that we understand the sufficiency of Scripture. Peter, the apostle, in 2 Peter in chapter 1 and verse 3 says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you get that? <laughs> this, is, this is critical. He's given us not some things, all things that pertain to what? Life, my life on this earth, not just when I get to heaven, and godliness, which means what it, whatever it is that I'm going to be in need of to look like Jesus, which is what godliness means, it's a synonym for Christ-likeness, whatever I'm going to be in need of to be able to be more Christ-like, more godly, God has given that to me. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in his word. I'm afraid that oftentimes in our Christian life, especially those who've initially come to Christ, we can treat in our salvation almost like the mistake I made when I, I bought a gift for one of my kids one time. I went to Walmart, and here I am just going up and down aisles trying to look for you know the toy section. I finally get there, and I, I can almost vaguely remember what my kid wanted, and I finally get to that that item, and I pull it off the shelf. I look at the price, and I look at the box, and I say, I, I think this is it. And so I, I grab it. I make a, I make a shot for the, the customer uh, line. I go on ahead and, and purchase it. I make my way home, storm through the door, and I say, kids, I'm home. And my child looks at the box, and they say, you got it. You bought it. You found it. Where'd you get it from? And I tell them, and here they are just scrambling to open it up. And I'm sitting next to my wife and the kids, and just eager to see what all they think about it. And here they are opening it up, and then they find out they can't use it. And I'm like, what's the problem? He's like, I can't use it. It's like, what do you mean you can't use it? I look at the box, and it says, um, note, <laughs> batteries not included. <laughs> And here I am thinking, oh, great. That was expensive all by itself, <laughs> right? I don't understand how much it cost me just to buy that, let alone go down a whole nother aisle to buy the batteries. And now here I can see this kid's face go from to just disappointment. <laughs> because here, here they are. It's late at night. I, got, I purchased it after work. They got this product that they're so excited to, to play with immediately, but they're not in a position to do so because we don't have the batteries to be able to do so. So it's one thing to be in possession of this toy that was expensive. It's a whole nother thing to be able to make use of it. And so the kid had to go upstairs, brush their teeth, and go to bed. And a lot of times we treat our salvation that way. And we treat our discipleship that way. It's like, yes, I know I'm saved. Yes, I know my sins are forgiven. Yes, I know I have Jesus. But, but what? <laughs> right? It's almost like, yeah, Jesus went so far as to bring the toy home. Right? But I can't use it <laughs> because I need more. I need, I need Jesus, but I need something else. Jesus plus. And what Jesus is saying here is, no, I've, 
yes, I'm, I'm glad I have his word, but I need more. He's like, no, <laughs> I've given you all things that pertain to life on this earth as a Christian until I come to take you in godliness. And Jesus says here, the one who gets this is the one who's going to build his life on the rock and not on sand. Everybody else who thinks they need Jesus and his word plus something else is building their lives on the sand. Who are you? Who am I? You see, Jesus says here, it's not enough even <laughs> to have his word. <laughs> wow. You ready for this? Can I, can I go a little bit further? Okay. Jesus says here, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man. A wise man who builds his house on the rock. <laughs> so it's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to just come to church. How about if I go to good, solid, Bible-believing church, where the preacher is known in the community, where they teach expositional preaching, <laughs> book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's not enough. How about where um, I got great books on the Bible? How about where I, I attend a, a great Bible study? That's not enough. I own a Bible. I own a, I own a study Bible. Still not enough. All those things are wonderful. Jesus says, look, it's not enough to just merely hear his word. What I got to do? I got to be prepared to do it. I got to be prepared to do it. This is, this is something else. A lot of times, I remember um, when I first um, came across this, early on in my Christian life, I used to quote this all wrong. I used to say, everyone who hears these words of mine is like a wise man who builds his, his life and his house on the rock. It's like, no. It's who hears it and does it. See, Christianity is more than just hearing good teaching. At the end of the day, Christianity is about being doers of God's word. Jesus wants to make sure. He says, look, every tree is known by its fruit. You shall know them by their fruit. Jesus doesn't want to have a bunch of people who, who merely hear things, but that's about it. He believes and we ought to believe that God's word has the ability to affect change in our lives. You see, when God's grace reaches us, it reaches us in such a way that it transforms our lives. You see, grace from a Christian standpoint doesn't just forgive sin. Grace transforms us. Grace enables us. Grace empowers us to be able to live a life pleasing in God's sight. And here, Jesus is saying that it's not just those who hear my word, it's also those who do it. Now, the, the question is, is, why is it that we don't find ourselves as satisfied and thrilled with God's word and all excited? Some people think, I, I know, um, maybe it's the Bible reading plan. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe I just need to find that cool Bible app. Maybe I just need to find someone who, who reads the Bible audibly with British language, you know, British accent, or, you know, with, with some kind of an accent or, or some kind of a voice that just makes me want to hear God's word and do it. And you see, a lot of times we're, we're constantly pointing at all of these things that I'm not too sure are where it's at. That's why God changes our hearts. He gives us new desires. I want us, better yet, instead of trying to change out and swap out our Bible reading plan, 
I want us to really look at what, where are my desires? If my desire isn't for him and his word, then where is it directed? Because remember, there's no neutral place. I remember uh, <laughs> when I, whenever I, I had a chance to make it home from work or wherever I was, um, in, in, I would usually make it home in, around a meal time. One of the first things my wife would say, preparing and wrapping up, finishing up um, lunchtime or dinner time and getting the table ready for us to, to sit and eat, would be, as soon as she heard me come in, she'll say, oh, you're home. Wonderful. Go on ahead and wash up and get ready because um, meal is ready. I'm done. It's lunch is ready or, or dinner is served. I'm like, oh, and whenever I would say things like, oh, that's great, but um, I'm fine. I'm good, honey. Thanks anyways, though. Or I would say, um, I'll be fine. You guys go on ahead. The first thing that would come out of her mouth will be, and she's thinking this, is he must have eaten somewhere else. <laughs> Was there lunch served at work? Did somebody bring a meal? Um, did you have a lunch appointment with um, anyone, um, ministry? Or did you grab something? Why is she thinking in these ways? Because she knows it's mealtime. And she realizes, like, everybody would be hungry at this point. You knew I would have a meal prepared. You knew what time you were coming. So there must be an explanation. Did you eat somewhere? And that makes total sense, right? And I think the same thing makes sense spiritually. This is what I'm trying to get at is this. Anytime we find ourselves at a place in our relationship with the Bible where we're like, I just... I'm not interested in eating, if you will. I need to be asking myself, if God, the Holy Spirit isn't asking me already, because he is, where have you eaten? <laughs> where have you eaten? You see, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. And so if God has saved me, if God has given me a new nature, and the only way that new nature birthed by the Holy Spirit can be properly fed is from God's word and I'm not hungry for it, I must have eaten somewhere else. You see, because God loves me and you, and because God cares for us, he asks us that question out of love for us. Where have you eaten? So one of the solutions to getting on track to being hungry all over again for God's word is not changing my Bible reading plan. It's not getting on the new hip and cool app that's out there and trending. As fine as that is, better yet, it's asking that heart-searching question. Where else am I eating? That's the key. What has my appetite? So much so that when it comes time for me to open up God's Word, or to attend a service, or to tune into a sermon, how come I'm not as excited to take in the word that's being taught and preached? How come I'm not excited to take it in all by myself in my personal Bible reading? Where else am I eating? Lastly, my last point is the, the storm is coming. It's not just that everyone is building their life on something. It's to realize the storm will come. 
It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You notice that here. Some people have questions about what this storm points to. Is this just the trials of our life, or does this have to do with final judgment? I would say both. So in one sense, this has to do with trials, that Christians, just like non-Christians, are not exempt from the trials of life. Right? Simply because I came to Jesus, I gave my life to Jesus, does not mean I'm going to be fine and good and life is going to be roses. No, I'm going to be met with trials and challenges and suffering. But what's the difference? The difference ought to be this. If I have God in my life, and if I'm allowing God's word to shape my life, I should have a perspective on my suffering and on my trials that the world doesn't. And I should be able to have promises and hope in a foundation that helps me to weather the storm like a non-Christian wouldn't be able to. And lastly, even if it has to do with final judgment, I have the hope of knowing that my faith and my confidence is not ultimately in myself and what I'm able to produce for myself. It's in the one who came and lived in my place and ultimately died for me and rose again. You see, as believers, our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in the risen one who's given us his word. Our life is the blessed life, not the judged life. You see, when you're a hearer of God's word and not merely a doer, you're able to see these things. You're like the one who looks at his life, James says, James chapter one, and sees what he's like. I, I know my identity and I walk away knowing who I am and never losing sight of that and living my life based upon my true identity. I want you to know this. I want you to know who you are and better yet, whose you are. Amen. I want to encourage you in these things as we're coming to a close. And I want to pray together with you that no matter where you are, you can be encouraged in these things. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the foundation that you have given us. And Lord, I pray that wherever we may find ourselves, I pray, Lord God, that today would be that day that we would begin that journey of ours, holding firmly to your word, not merely as hearers being deceived, but as doers of your word. And Lord, I pray, may there be no other foundation that's adequate for us as your children, but the foundation that has to do with hearing what you have to say. Jesus said, this is my true disciple. Indeed, the one who continues in my word, John 8, 31. God, would you produce this in our lives? Holy Spirit, would you enable us and encourage us and remind us all over again that you've given us new desires and a new heart and a new nature that has the ability to be able to live after your word. God, I thank you for your people. God, I pray that you bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you.